We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, And I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Blue Wire. Right, welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the sports movie podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Bandujo. Today, we are talking to Keith Law, baseball writer for The Athletic, one of my favorite baseball writers, and a returning guest on this pod. Keith joined to cover Trouble with the Curve way back when, back when this pod was named uh, Trouble with the Script in dubious honor of that movie. It was about a year ago. I was really happy to have him on again. Uh, today, we're talking about Keith's new book, The Inside Game. It's a book I really enjoyed. It provides baseball examples to explain critical thinking and decision-making theories. It's a really enjoyable read for any baseball fan. We, you know, we we discuss it, you know, decently in depth on the pod. You know, Keith Keith gives a much better description of the book than I do. Um, I will have links in the show notes to where you can pick that book up. Uh, and since this is the sports movie podcast, we're also going to talk about Moneyball, which, despite its acclaim, has had a you know it has a ton of baseball problems uh, that kind of come to light with with Art Howe being in in the hospital right now fighting COVID. Uh, the movie Moneyball definitely did him dirty. Uh, it's a it's a movie Keith is not too fond of. So during you know the back half of the pod, we discuss some of the film's missteps, and then we finish it up with just kind of some spur of the moment talk about the 2020 MLB draft format. Uh, the plan to reduce the minor leagues. It's a pretty well-rounded discussion for a podcast that's usually about sports movies. It was fun to talk uh, baseball with Keith. I, you know, I really admire his work. It was I was very thankful that he was able to take the time to talk about this book. Next week, we've got our non-sports movie of the month, Pitch Perfect, with guest Mike Schubert. Uh, if you haven't yet, check out episodes from earlier this month. Last week, we covered The Rookie on Friday, Friday's episode, and then on Monday's episode, had a conversation with the film's inspiration, Jim Morris. So it was a, a rookie-themed week. Uh, next month's schedule is up in the Big Screen Sports Facebook group, so if you're looking to rewatch as you know as we cover, go join that group. But for now, let's go to Keith Law, talk about the inside game and Moneyball. Okay, today I am joined by a returning guest, which seems to be the theme of this month. He joined me last year to discuss the worst baseball movie of all time, which is Trouble with the Curve. Back when this podcast was called Trouble with the Script, making his first appearance under the name Big Screen Sports, he is a baseball writer for The Athletic, host of The Keith Law Show, and author of the new book, The Inside Game. It is Keith Law. Keith, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Right off the bat, um, I loved your book, The Inside Game. Tell the folks uh, where they can find it and what your book is about. So you can find it anywhere you're getting books uh, For since most bookstores are still closed. Uh, if you don't have one that's doing curbside or mail order, I would suggest bookshop.org. It's a great new site that supports independent bookstores. They provide, they do logistics for some stores or they try to source through them or it just give a portion of their proceeds to independent bookstores. And obviously in this economic shutdown, that's really essential. It is my attempt to combine good baseball stories 
mostly about bad decisions, with concepts from behavioral economics and cognitive psychology that have become pretty popular in baseball circles over the last 10 years. And I thought I could either, one, just write a fun baseball book that looks at some of these interesting or weird stories through a different lens, or if folks are interested in learning more about cognitive biases, I could explain them using baseball examples that I think just makes them accessible to a broader section of the audience that maybe has no background in, in anything like economics. Well, the, the latter works out for me because I don't really have much of a background in economics, but the baseball stories made for such a good segue into those concepts and a way for me to understand them. I really enjoyed just the, the general, you know, the discussion of, you know, these concepts on decision making and how you applied those great examples to them and helped me understand them uh, much better. I don't want to spoil the book, but I, I do commend you for being the pers- first person I know of to compare the Albert Pujols contract with a garage treadmill and uh, also <laughs> confirming to me that I was not crazy for always assuming that the umps were giving a guy that 3-0 strike that they really didn't deserve. It's a, it's a long-held bias, and it was very good to see the actual economic science behind that. Yes, and I can't take credit for the discovery, but hopefully I'll just make other people's work available to, a, again, a bigger audience. If I can do that and amplify good work done by other people, I'm more than happy to serve that function. Well, I want to I wanna ask you about that because you mentioned the book uh, Thinking Fast and Slow in your book a lot and, and you know how you looked back. I, w- I want to see how you looked back at some of your own biases or decisions after you first encountered that book and after you first started thinking about these kind of concepts. You talk about the anchoring effect, kind of using the example of, of first rounders, people always associating that tag with them and it might possibly inflate uh, value in your mind. Like as a Twins fan, I had this long-term, this long-held faith in both Cole Stewart and Tyler J because of that first round <laughs> tag. Sure. Uh, that I that I I probably should have have given up hope long before you know I actually did, it, and that pretty much was when they left the organization. Right. Well, and that is you know that tag that label, first rounder, it tells us something about what people thought about that player at the time that he was drafted, but it its predictive value is certainly a lot less than we think it is. You'll continue to refer to a player, and trust me, I still do it too. I refer to players as former first-rounders for years in my writing. You know, in part because I do think it's interesting to note that a player was in the first round, was taken in the first round. Here's how his career's gone, for better or for worse. The flip side, though, is that um, it can, our, our minds anchor on certain labels, often on labels or numbers that are just absolutely immaterial to the question at hand. The example that I give in the book of the strike zone that you just alluded to is that umpires are unduly swayed by what's happened on previous pitches. If they've called the last two pitches balls, the count is, you know, say 2-0 and or 3-1, or and one, they're much more likely to call that next pitch a strike even if the pitch probably wasn't a strike because their minds are anchored in that fashion. Oh, that, if I've called the last two pitches balls, the next pitch is somehow more likely to be a strike. That's not actually true, but we have hard evidence that indicates that this is how umpires' calls are biased, and that ultimately, uh, that to me, that's worse for the game, and I think ultimately it is an argument for the automated strike zone. And if I understand the book correctly, that that anchoring bias can also be related to maybe a first impression or something like your first initial viewing. And what I wanted to ask you, especially after, you know, first encountering these concepts, was there, have you recognized any anchoring bias in retrospect in your scouting? Maybe someone that you saw really well or really poorly the first time you saw them, which caused you to take longer to come around on them in in one way or the other for better or for worse? Um, I definitely would be a little prey to the first round effect, particularly if it's a player, um, put it this way, if, a, if I thought a player was a first rounder and he was taken in the first round and maybe he did a little something early in his career to start to justify that, do I hang on to those guys a little bit longer? Yeah, 
I absolutely do. I mean, Josh Vitters is a good example of a guy who I, I had rated as a top five talent in his draft and then who was taken in the top five in his draft. And there, was, there were very good reasons, not the least of which is he had an amazing swing. He really did have one of the best looking swings I've ever seen. I saw you I think, tweeting about it and I went looking for it on YouTube the other day just trying to find a good video. Yeah, Craig Goldstein had brought that up and he actually brought up the question you know, if there were another one like him, would we fall for the same trap? And I actually have a guy in mind. I'll talk about it as we get closer to this year's draft. But I think there's a guy like that, and I'm hoping I'm not falling for the same thing again. I'm hoping I've caught myself this time around. I won't spoil it just yet. But I do think that's a good example. And there have been a few of those where, especially earlier in my career, where I was less confident in my own evaluations and maybe less confident in the quality of information that I was getting, that uh, that ultimately I would rely too much on these sort of secondary indicators that aren't good indicators, as it turns out. I mean, you could be taken in the first round and stink right away. We've got actually quite a few examples of that, of players who were taken in the first round and three years later were out of baseball or nearly out of baseball. And so, you know, I try never to let that be a factor for me anymore. I try to redo all my evaluations, like when I do rankings each offseason, from scratch. Like, I want to start over each time around and rethink and it's not doesn't matter what he was two or three years ago what matters is what his performance data tell us and the player that we predict him to be going forward and that's what should determine a player's rankings and my evaluations of the players well speaking of first rounders the bit from the book that you had used to promote it on the athletic was part of your chapter about base rate neglect and high school pitchers and simply that statistically high school pitchers seem to work out less than any other player drafted in the first round, any other between college pitchers or high school hitters or or college hitters. Do you ever see a scenario where teams actually decide to spend first rounders on high school pitching on a less frequent basis, like where there's a, a significant industry shift uh, that, that, relating to how the numbers the numbers on how they you know they actually pan out what they the numbers suggest they should do maybe something like teams employing the pirates 09 strategy of taking a safer cheaper player in the first round and then just popping a bunch of high school lottery tickets do you ever see that being the case because i know high school pitchers are still rated very highly in in pre-draft rankings i think you had carter stewart i think second overall in your rankings just a couple years ago Mm mm-hmm and Matt Liberator was third that year. Now, I will say two things. One, I'd redo that, uh, independent of the fact that Carter Stewart didn't work out and Matt Liberator so far seems to be working out. Set that aside. I just wouldn't do that again. Um, that was also, if I remember correctly, a pretty bad college draft, and that makes it harder just to, to assemble rankings. And it would make it harder if I were picking second, third, fourth in the draft club, in that in, in draft order, too. What? What would I do in those situations? I don't actually know. Um, you know, do you take, do you accept you're picking second? You're probably going to pay more than you think a guy is worth for a much lower ceiling than you were hoping to get, maybe going into that spring. Well, that's the draft, you know, gives you what it gives you. You can't sort of make up players who aren't there. I mean, the flip side is now this year we have an extremely college heavy draft, like, because this was a strong college draft class to begin with, and we've lost basically the entire season of amateur baseball my rankings, and I've put up something already, a top 30 already, I'll be doing more rankings in the next couple of weeks, you're not going to see a high school pitcher probably in the top 15, which is a combination of me just learning from my own research. And I think also recognizing that this draft class gives us some of those college players that make it easier to push high school players down to, to accurately assess their risk and have them lower in the first round. Because it's not that they're, it's not that high school players high school pitchers have less ceiling than we thought they did, but it's that they fail at a much higher rate than people accept. They fail at a higher rate than you would think given where they're drafted. And the one last point I'll make though, is if you look last year, there wasn't a high school pitcher taken in the top 15. I was writing this chapter around that time. And I don't know if that was a beginning of a trend or a bit of a fluke. I'm very curious to see how that plays out once we get to a regular draft year, hopefully in 2021. So are the, the stigma of high school, high school pitchers 
I, I it's not like the same as say something like high school position players from Mississippi, where there's just that longstanding thing of those guys don't usually work out. But do you? So in the future, going forward in your rankings, are you you're factoring that in then? Just something that's yes. independent yep. of the player himself. It's just that the category that he's in is significantly higher risk. Yeah, back. Imagine if you put a number, a value. Not a, not a rating, but a, a value. I think this player is worth $40 million over the course of his career. I'm making that number up, but just you know, go with it. If I put a dollar figure on every player's expected career value in the draft, then I would back all the high school players off by you know some percentage, 10% or 15%, something like that, uh, to reflect the fact that they fail at a higher rate. Actually, probably the discount rate, and that's essentially what it is. If, you have, if you're familiar with any microeconomics, you know about discount rates. That's essentially what you're doing. It's the whole class. It's not that I don't like these individual players. And it's not that I'd never take one either. It's not what the real conclusion that I found is that major league teams take too many high school pitchers in the first round. Not you should never take a high school pitcher in the first round. It's getting cast a bit that way as I talk about it. And if I were an individual scouting director, I might feel that way. But that's actually not the conclusion, right? The optimal number of high school pitchers to be taken in the first round each year is not zero from an industry-wide perspective. It's probably three to five where it's normally somewhere around seven or eight uh, with some variance. So to me, with the best way to approach that is line up your whole board. Let's say if I were a scouting director, especially. I've got reports on 500 players. Line them all up and then back off all the high school pitchers appropriately by some fixed discount rate for the entire class. If you think you can come up with slightly better discount rates for different types, like where they're from or how tall they are or some other variables you think matter, sure. But you should be backing them all off rather than trying to come up with reasons why, well, we're not going to back off Tyler Kolek, for example. We think he's the exception. We can all fool ourselves into that. That is some serious base rate neglect. And in fact, you should be looking at all but you'd probably be looking more at the high school pitchers you like with that jaundiced eye of saying yep but he's still a high school pitcher are there any pitchers recently that you can think of that would be kind of the exception to that and like lean more towards a safer model like from my memory i remember dylan bundy being considered a really polished and he got he got up quick enough for that very fast it just didn't just didn't you know, work out from a health perspective. Are there any recent pitchers that you've been able to say, this guy seems more like a college arm than a high school arm, or everyone is just shuttled in that, in that high school category? Braxton Garrett, and he blew out right away, right? I think he had four pro appearances and he blew his arm out. I mean, that was the most polished high school pitcher I've seen, at least in the last five years. And he didn't throw very hard, right? That was sort of one of the things we know is guys, it's not so much that guys throw really hard, but guys who are regularly pitching at the top end of their velocity range seem to get hurt more often. That's bad. He didn't really do that. Uh, he threw a ton of strikes. He had it, some of the best control I've ever seen on a high school guy. That also would indicate he probably threw fewer pitches. He probably wasn't worked as hard. And there's really never been, even sort of in hindsight, no one's ever said, oh, this guy was worked too hard. There's a re-. He just, pitchers just get hurt. That guy was as safe as it gets. I think I had him third on my draft board that year. I loved what I saw out of him. It's, you know what? That's the guy you take because you think he's a bit more like a college arm. He's more polished. There's still some projection, but he's definitely more polished. He throws strikes. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't been worked very hard. We like all those things. And he still got hurt. And I still think Braxton Garrett's a real prospect, but his timetable alone made him a typical high school pitcher, regardless of what happens from here on out. Yeah, because of the timing of when he got hurt, it basically eliminated two seasons, I think. Basically yeah, almost that's exactly right. Yeah, it was like June. We didn't pitch the first summer. Am I getting this right? And then he came back, made a couple of short season starts, and then boom, and then he was hurt. And then missed a year and a half. So he's really barely pitched. I think we're, now he's going to, you know, this season, not his fault, obviously, but he's going to end up something like four years, four appearances in four years or something close to that. It's more than that, actually, because I think he pitched a little bit last summer, but like nowhere near the workload that a guy should have in four calendar years since he was drafted. And none of this is his fault. I'm not blaming him necessarily. I'm not even entirely blaming the Marlins because I thought it was a good pick at the time, but it's just indicative of the high school pitcher issue. The last thing I want to bring up from the book, and then everyone else can go read it and and get all these great examples because it is phenomenal. You talk about recency bias, which I think is definitely the one term that even people unfamiliar with all these other concepts, you know, will be able to identify with or at least kind of 
from face value be able to say, oh, I think I, I know a little bit about recency bias. You mentioned uh, the all-timers, Brian LaHare, Derek Bell. I always think of Chris Shelton when I think of small yeah. sample size or recency bias. I think of Chris Shelton's April in the early 2000s. Um, this is a is kind of a two-part question. Is there any sort of set, in, in your mind, in your evaluation, is there any sort of set sample size for hitters or pitchers where you can, especially prospects, where you can look at it in a level and say, okay, this is enough to know who a guy is. And then is there anyone that you can remember in your past evaluations of getting fooled on recent by recency bias? There is it's the best recency bias story in the book is the, the Jose Bautista story there in the, in the chapter on good decisions, which is really excellent, which is, and well, and which is excellent because Alex Anthopoulos talked, he gave me so much detail on that. Um, in terms of guys getting fooled, I mean, there's so many stories. There's lots of little stories of guys getting fooled by recency bias. I'm thinking, but I mean, I could think back to, gosh, I could think back to my time in Toronto when we took a guy in the third round, I think it was, Brian Petway. We had just very little data on him, but he'd had such a huge breakout junior year and our scouts liked him enough. And we just ultimately got fooled, but got fooled by two things, got fooled by recency bias by the most recent data and ignored the fact that we didn't have as much track record with him. We didn't have good wood bat data. He didn't play anywhere significant over the summer. And if there were any way that I would, if there were any way I could go back in time and just get back into those rooms and start discussing again, that that's the thing I would emphasize. And people brought that up. It's not that nobody thought of that, but we de-emphasized that and ended up taking the player for, you know, other reasons, whatever. You know, that's a little bit lost to history, but that's a, a, just a random example. Sorry, I'm sort of going off on a bit of a tangent here. By all means, as, go off. As you're asking that, I'm like thinking myself too, like that's one I wish we could have had back. Maybe we still take a player who never goes anywhere, but that pick just went bad right away, and that's a recency bias one. I mean, we Recency bias, I think, is one of the ones we'll never get away from in sports because there's such an inherent belief in about the idea of the hot hand and also just no he's changed man he's changed he's different he did the work he's this in the best shape of his life he, he redid his whole swing now he changed his delivery sometimes that's true usually it's not so is there really then any way to say hey this is a set amount of time of we know what this guy is like a full season or a season and a half two seasons worth of it bats in double a we know who this guy is, or is it? Is it smaller? Is it shorter? Is there really just no way to say it's all case dependent? So I think teams have a better answer to that than we do with the advanced data that they have through Statcast. We see some of it. If you see a guy whose launch angle has suddenly changed, like I think of Chris Taylor and Max Muncie. Muncie even more so than Taylor, I would say. Taylor kind of regressed a bit, uh, but he's still a better player than he used to be. Muncie really seems to have held serve better than. I think even folks who said, now he's a different player, better than that. Um, you know, did we know in less than a year with those guys? Probably. I would have still had some trepidation in, say, making a large investment in those players. But I would have continued to, if I were with the Dodgers, I would have said, no, keep playing him. Because not only is the performance different, but the underlying indicators, he's hitting the ball harder. He's got a better launch angle. They may have pitch-by-pitch -pitch data, specific data on types of pitches he's missing or hitting that also gave them more confidence in him. Like, I think we actually now have more granular data to help us figure that stuff out substantially sooner than we would have otherwise. Whereas in the past, it would have been wait and see, wait and see. That's why on Jose Bautista, after a year, I was still kind of a skeptic saying, that's a tremendous year, but it doesn't go with anything that happened before. Are we just falling for one great fluke season? Well, it turned out we weren't, and the Blue Jays had some information that convinced them that he was worth the long-term investment. So now it's it's basically less a time period thing and more of a the data during that time period, thing, the data behind that time period. I think that if you see two months of a guy hitting, you know, out of his mind, we all tend to look at that. And I think if you know, right, if you follow this stuff, you tend to look at that and say, eh, that could be a fluke. But if you have underlying data that says, I'm just picking the ones that people know, right? Exit velocity and launch angle. If those are totally different, essentially if he's hitting more barrels by the MLB stack cast definition, he's hitting way more barrels than he did before. Look, that could still be something of a fluke, but you feel better. 
as opposed to exit velocity hasn't changed, launch angle, launch angle really hasn't changed, but he's getting better results. That is a stone fluke at that point. I think even now we're more likely to call those out and say that's not sustainable. Whereas at least if there's some of this underlying information, not performance data, but the underlying metrics that indicate that that it might be real, that is, uh, that indicate that there's something more fundamentally different about, you know, just keep focusing on hitters, about the way he's hitting the ball, that gives us more confidence to say, well, wait a minute, this might actually be real. This might be something he can sustain going forward. Well, everyone listening who's enjoyed this conversation, please go check out Keith's book. We're going to take a quick ad break, and then I've got some Moneyball questions for him. Big Screen Sports is presented by BetOnline.ag. There's no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, BetOnline. NASCAR is back, and BetOnline has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You can still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events 24-7, or you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness-style NFL simulation you can enter online for free. And coming up next Sunday, BetOnline has ex-Chicago Bulls Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges joining them to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary and what they're calling After the Dance. If you haven't seen The Last Dance, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, but you know, tune into that on the uh, on the BetOnline, BetOnline website. Uh, visit BetOnline.ag, use promo code BLUEWIRE, receive your new welcome bonus, and check out all the action. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. Big Screen Sports is also brought to you by Blue Chew. Guys, you looking to last longer? Go a few extra rounds? Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first chewable that brings you performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. It's like the it's like Lifesavers gummies, I guess, version of, uh, of boner pills. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when using promo code BLUEWIRE. That's all one word. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. Now back to the podcast. All right, Keith, uh, since this is this podcast is big screen sports, we talk sports movies. You joined me uh, about a year ago now to talk about w- the worst baseball movie of all time, Trouble with the Curve. Um, Moneyball is is regarded as a different kind of movie. Moneyball is generally regarded as a by, by the general public, probably as a very good baseball movie. You were doing a chat on Periscope in, I think, around December. And someone asked you what your favorite sports or baseball movie of the last decade was. I remember this specifically because that person was me. Oh, you you said, but uh, someone in the chat mentioned Moneyball and you're not a fan. I went back and read your review. You're definitely not a fan. And I I can fully say that you do need as a baseball fan, if you're if you're a deep baseball fan, you do need to leave a lot at the door to appreciate Moneyball. A lot of your 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 knowledge about baseball at the door. So for you, that was in your review, you weren't you weren't very kind. You're not a huge fan of Moneyball. What was your instant reaction the minute you left the theater? I couldn't believe how bad it was. I was just floored. And the fact that people sort of retroactively like people that after the fact, not only did people say it was a good baseball movie, people thought it was a good movie. I'm like, do you, wait, do, do you not watch movies? Like that movie was a totally jumbled disjointed mess of storytelling without an actual arc like there's not really a start or a finish and the idea of building this thing around the 20 game winning streak which was i mean it was fun i remember that summer extremely well and was was rooting for them it was incredibly fun i was friends with some of those guys but that's not a movie that's not much of a story and, you know, that was the big thing when I wrote about it and people, I mean, I said it was an absolute mess of a film and it, it is, it still is. And I don't think it's even aged all that well, but that, you know, and they, they, I mean, it starts where Paul Podesta didn't even want his name attached to the film. Good for him. Good life choice. Um, and so instead they replace him with this, you know, fictional stand in Peter Brand, who is the most stereotypical, nerdy, out of shape, like, Okay, we're. I mean, the moment you see that, it's okay. We're we're not even trying here, right? We're just gonna go for the easy layup, pick on the big nerd, 
And, you know, the compared to, it's funny, there's a, there's a bunch of real scouts in the room, in the draft room. I know at least one of them. Um, and then the scouts were in there to be idiots, basically. They were to be sort of useful idiot foils to, you know, Brad Pitt's genius and Peter Brand's extreme intelligence. And we're just going to do this better because we're smart. You're a bunch of morons. And I even found that like particularly, um, particularly offensive. The depiction of Art Howe, I th- thought was particularly offensive. That was the toughest part for me. Yeah. Um, to mention a waste of a pretty good actor, I would say. Like they had pretty good cast in that movie. And um, a lot of them were kind of rather fairly poorly used i would say um or like chosen because they were there was some physical similarity there were also even things you wouldn't even necessarily know like there's a reference to you know eric you're now our scouting director well i know who that's supposed to be and that's also really offensive because that guy is still the a scouting director 10 years later and deserved a lot better treatment than that grady fuson is a real person and he is not the way he was depicted in that film that film basically put everybody into two camps you're either one of the Moneyball guys like Billy or Peter Brand, or you're an idiot. And like that, that to me is bad writing, bad filmmaking, and then also really offensive because I know so many of the people involved and they deserved way better. It was, it was truly fictional in the, in, in the extreme sense of the word fictional. It's, I mean, quote-unquote based off the book Moneyball, but it does leave a lot out. You don't, they don't mention Miguel Tejada, Jermaine Dye, any of the big three Right. Uh, it was a loaded A's team, loaded A's team that yep. my be- my beloved 2002 Minnesota Twins were able to defeat in the ALDS. Probably a top three moment of my life to this point, I would say. Um, was there anything like was there anything authentic about the movie that you were able to pull from it, or was it just all bad? It was hard to pull what was authentic out compared to because of so much that wasn't right but i will at least say this like now you and i talked about trouble with the curve and and I, now i'm being completely serious like trouble with the curve didn't bother to get the baseball shit right like that was the biggest thing right they just flubbed so many really basic things like you can't trade draft picks or your area scout isn't the only guy to go see the players you're considering for the first or second picks in the draft or just having the scouts sit on the correct side of the field to scout a hitter they just didn't bother. Moneyball got most of that stuff fine. Not necessarily perfectly accurate, and they did take some liberties with specifics of trades and actual players, but they tried to make it look like real baseball. It was better. It wasn't perfect. I remember the thing where it's, that, wait, Billy Bean and Mark Spiro can only talk trades in person? That's not how that happens. Even back then, 20 years ago, that's not how that happens. Certainly today, no one talks to anybody anymore. They just text. But you know, they, they did way, way better with that kind of detail than Trouble with the Curve or frankly a lot of other baseball movies that try to show some front office stuff or clubhouse stuff have done. That part was fine. Um, and by the way, I've said the, the book itself is flawed. There's stuff in there that's not really accurate, but it's good. It's a really well-written book. And if you, it, I think it tells good stories because it's Mike, Michael Lewis is a great storyteller um, and would also get you sort of in the mode of understanding some of these different philosophies and why this was interesting. Whereas I think the movie just fails at that and tries to tell this like upstart story that flops because it's so binary and so, and the story is so totally disjointed. Are there any quick fixes that you would make? Like if if you had maybe like three, were able to pick three things that you would either, you know, add or, or, or fix. Do you think you could do a quick fix job on this? More easily than Trouble with the Curve, right? Trouble with the Curve was just lost cost. Right. Lost totally, cost. There's just right? nothing it's, to be safe in that movie. I might I, ra- I wouldn't wrap fish in the script for that movie. <laughs> you know, this, if you handed me, not a screenwriter, so I'm being very, this is very glib for me to even say this, but if you handed me the script and said, what do we do? Or I said, first of all, cut out all the family stuff for Billy Bean uh, because I think it doesn't work. I think it's kind of a big distraction. And, uh, and again, not terribly fair to real people. Um, I would try to soften the divide that is depicted in the movie between the stat guys and the, and the old, you know, the baseball lifers. Grady Fuson, the character, again, that's not who he is as a person, but you know, let's accept that, okay, maybe they're going to sharpen him a little bit for the movie. Um, but still, I would 
like provide some depth to that character. It's a guy who's been in baseball his whole life and spent a very ended up spending a long time with the A's, went elsewhere, and then ended up going back to the A's. So obviously it's not like there were hard feelings. Um but he like the people who are supposed to be the antagonists in this movie are too easy. They're just like badly drawn villains. And it shouldn't be like that. Art Howe shouldn't have been like that. Some of the scouts who are in conversations are depicted even in passing they're not like that people generally aren't like that this is not a superhero movie where the bad guys have to be really bad i mean why did people love black panther as a movie not just as a superhero movie well guess what because um the kill what killmonger right the bad guy he made good points like he was actually a really interesting complex character who showed up and made interesting arguments and he was complex Moneyball would have benefited from more of that, of saying, no, the guys on the other side of this are not idiots, and they're not bad people. They might be stuck in an old way. Well, guess what? That's very human of them to sort of be comfortable with tradition, resistance to change, status quo bias, for example, or just plain old, this is the way we've always done it. It doesn't make you a bad person. And I would absolutely have tried to you know, create more, take out all the, all the family stuff, all the off-field stuff, for Billy Bean's character and give that complexity, give that time to creating some complexity there so that those discussions that happen in the front office, draft room, clubhouse are much more nuanced and a lot less of Brad Pitt being smarter than everyone and talking down to everybody. Cause one, that's not how it happened. And two, it just doesn't make for that interesting a movie. Now it's like, well, I know where we're going. Cause this is like every other, this guy versus that guy or one, one versus many movie that we've ever seen. So you mentioned the draft room, and one of the biggest parts of the the book itself, Moneyball, is the the draft section and that that A's draft class. I think it was Swisher, Landon Powell, Mark Tian, if I remember correctly. I think yeah, it, I it mean, was, it was a big a, part. They of had the book. a lot of picks, but they got a lot of guys. Yeah, it was a big part of the book, and it's not covered at all in the film. And I, the MLB draft is not on in the pop culture lexicon as much as the NBA or NFL draft. I can see why they cut it but to me that's the biggest omission is that is that the biggest omission for you are there any other things that that they just completely dropped out of this movie that you were like how could you not bring that in from the book well the um you mentioned them just sort of forgetting those pictures existed right hudson Mulder and zito just i don't even know if they were named in the movie let alone given the credit. You see the, the back of Tim Hudson's jersey. Yeah, that's it, point. right? It's pretty, right? Just tell the whole story. And by the way, Tim Hudson was a sixth-round pick, right? Good job, right? Good job. You did. You found value at a point in the draft. You look at what Tim Hudson produced in his career versus where he was picked. That's a draft pick for the ages. He could have had a story. You could have maybe compressed some timelines there to fit him in a little bit more. That would have been good. And by the way, how did you get Mulder and Zito, well, you sucked for a couple of years and had high draft picks. Also part of the story, part of the strategy, and they nailed both of those picks. There's no reason not to mention those guys. To me, you could mention them in passing and say, yeah, okay, but they, you know, two of those guys were taken in the top 10 and they turned out to be absolutely worth where they were selected. That's great. Here's the other stuff they did that's more interesting because it's the stuff fewer teams are able to consistently get right. Also would have allowed them I think to talk, and it, it eventually, is, you know, suddenly we're talking about a three-hour movie here, and we're not going to do that. But maybe acknowledging that, hey, they tried a lot of this stuff, and some of it didn't work. Right, that whole thing with Jeremy Brown, Jeremy Brown just didn't work out. They took a lot of guys like that, where they, and a lot of it was just because they had to save money, not because they thought these were the best players, but they couldn't go at or overslot with every single pick in those years where they had lots of extra selections. They tried some stuff that just flat out didn't work. And maybe mentioning, hey, there were certain types of college pitchers, essentially like good stats college pitchers to be overly, um, you know, to oversimplify it. Some of that stuff didn't work. Why didn't it work? Could you mention in passing? Oh, yeah, we took a couple of these guys. This guy got hurt. That guy got hurt. I mean, you could play it a little bit even for laughs, right? In the sense that, yeah, we took all these guys. We thought they were great. And then the whole, you know. Their arms started falling left and left and right. You know, all these guys blew up on us. Or this guy quit baseball. And, you know, we, they took a bunch of guys who were, you know, not to body shame anyone, but they were overweight by baseball standards. And most of those guys didn't pan out. You could talk about that 
eh, I'd be worried about them talking about it and just turning into a series of fat jokes. But there's something to be said for maybe that class of players is just riskier. They thought they found an inefficiency and it didn't work. Okay, you could put that in there somewhere. But instead, it was very much about these guys figured it out. They got the whole solution here. That's how they won 20 games in a row. Oh, yeah, but they didn't actually win a playoff series until, well, after that. So that's not much of an ending. So let's just talk about that winning streak and, and show a video of Jeremy Brown. And it sort of made a very unsatisfying ending and sort of, well, wait, what, what, what are you telling me? The heroes didn't do the thing you made me think they were going to do? Like, it's just, it's clumsy storytelling. And I think a big part of it comes back to also, they, they didn't know where they wanted to end, so they couldn't figure out how to get there. Well, they make it seem as though the Hatterberg, Chad Bradford, and someone else that in the Jeremy Giambi signings were well, what's would be what saves a team because there's that in the beginning of the movie, it's like, oh, we lost Giambi, we lost Damon, we lost Isringhausen, we're screwed. It, it could have been summed up in a you know one like one paragraph of dialogue and just saying, hey, Billy, we've got this great roster in place. We've got these three great pitchers. We've got Miguel Tejada, who's about to win an MVP. We've got Jermaine Dye, like. If if we find some low cost options that are undervalued, we can really you know we can still be good and like you, you and you do that you at least acknowledge the um, the current members of the team. My final Moneyball thing for you is is this movie is is pretty generally regarded as a top tier baseball film at least of the past ten to fifteen years, and we are in a weird space for sports movies and baseball movies in that there's not a lot of them and definitely not a lot of good ones that have happened in the last two decades. What is there a film that you could point to instead as the best baseball film of the last 15 years? The one I always bring up, I don't know if it's the best. Um, maybe it is the best is you've seen sugar. I think, oh, mo- yeah. right. Yeah. Most people have, most people have actually never heard of it and it's come and gone from streaming services too. I'll actually look up as I talk to you too, if it's st- streaming free anywhere. I you believe I had to rent it when I covered it. Yeah, it was on Netflix. And I think it, then it was gone from Netflix so it's from 2008. It uh, oh, it's on what is this? You have to have Direct TV. That is Direct TV, and that's it. Yeah, looks like you'd have to rent it anywhere else. It's a, I don't think it's a very expensive rental because it's kind of obscure. Um, and those filmmakers have gone on to do much bigger things. But Sugar takes a small story about a Dominican pitching prospect comes to the United States, pitches in the minor leagues, and really struggles with both assimilation and suddenly playing organized baseball against a much higher level of competition than anything he'd faced before. And it's more not an indictment of him, but an indictment of this sort of system that kind of chews these players up and spits them out. It is a small film, really well told, that gets the details right. That is the best on-screen depiction I've ever seen of professional baseball, of any aspect of professional baseball. Many have tried. I don't think anything's gotten it as close to as right as that. The film, the ending isn't perfect, but I think it kind of works because there's really only about two way, two places you could have taken that and they cho- made the better choice of the two. Um, and I think it's really thought-provoking and will probably leave you feeling more compassion for minor leaguers in general uh, who are you know, drastically underpaid and, and just not very well treated at all by the industry. Um, and for players who come from outside of the United States, who come particularly from countries where English isn't the native language, maybe they come here not speaking any, how much bigger the challenge is for them than for kids who maybe come out of American high schools or colleges and, and face no assimilation difficulties or, or very, very little moving from academic life into pro ball. And I think that's... That's the power of a movie. I don't think it's manipulative. I think it tells a real story and you will leave thinking about it and wanting to see the lives of those real life counterparts of the character, Sugar, uh, get better. Well, it's funny. I hadn't I hadn't really thought about this, so bear with me because I'm, I'm kind of feeling this idea out as I go. But Sugar, it looks like next year is going to have aged even better, be even more relevant because in that movie, they simplify the minor leagues. There's just A ball, double A, triple A. And he goes from the complex to full season ball in, in the Midwest League, you assume. I think they were playing at Quad Cities. And that looks to be now the path for anyone coming from the Dominican Republic or Venezuela or Colombia to play baseball. It looks like they're going to be, if 
if all this reporting, this great reporting by, um, you know, JJ Cooper's done a lot of it, Baseball America, who is who I covered Sugar with, if a lot of that is true and they do eliminate short season, this looks like the the path that Sugar Santos takes is gonna be technically the path that a lot of these guys are gonna take is jumping from the complex leagues directly into full season ball in the Midwest League or the Sally League or something like that. Yeah, I have a huge problem with that. I have multiple problems with that. Um, I mean, it's just for listeners who don't know, the most likely outcome of the currently sort of on hold negotiations between the majors and the minors to revise the, the PBA, the professional baseball agreement, we'll see the complete elimination of short season leagues between the Arizona Rookie League and the Gulf Coast League and full season low A baseball. There'll be structural changes, realignment, et cetera, to the full season leagues, but the disappearance of anything between those levels I think is a problem in general for teenage prospects. I think it's particularly bad for uh, prospects from outside the United States because of calibers of competition, because you're going from 16, 17 years old, you may play a year in the DSL, um, or if there's ever a VSL or, or maybe a Colombian summer league, again, something outside the United States that's the bottom rung for the 16, 17 year olds. You come here, you would typically play maybe one year in the complex, then probably move up to short season ball if you're not a Wander Franco who's immediately ready for for low A. Um, the system wasn't perfect, right? The Appalachian League was a pretty terrible place to send Latin American prospects. You're sending them to sort of really, you know, rural, um, extremely white, not particularly friendly to folks from outside the United States. Um, maybe you're folks who don't spend speak English and certainly not a place where a kid coming from outside the United States is going to find familiar faces or familiar foodstuffs. Yeah, um, I've seen a game in Danville, Virginia, and that's not what you think of when you th- when you imagine America coming from the no. Dominican Republic. Nope. I've been to Pulaski, and they treated me extremely well at the ballpark, but I left and said, this is not a part of America I in which I even feel particularly comfortable. Um, and... I can't imagine continuing to send players there. If I were running player development, I would have always skipped players over that level, but I would have sent them to the New York Penn League. And I still say, and I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to keep saying this even after the battle is lost. If a major league team wants to run additional an additional affiliate between the complex leagues and low A, they should have the right to do so. They should not have the obligation, but they should be able to do so. And if four teams or 10 teams, however many, want to have a New York Penn League team, let them. There should be nothing stopping them. And unfortunately, I think what's going to happen is there it's going to be you know, 120 full season teams in the complex leagues, and that's it. And that to me, that's worse for baseball, and it's way worse for these players. I think the one certainty, the one thing you can definitively say with these negotiations is there will be big leaguers that the sport misses out on if there is no short season to put. I talked to, I, I talked on the phone to Lane Adams last week, who spent mm. three separate years in rookie ball and eventually yep. got some good big league time. He is he is a guy who would not have, not have stuck with the sport if there was not a rookie ball to send him to or a short season. Sure. Yeah, I think we're gonna lose a lot of players. What if? You know, there's this talk that the draft this year could be as little as five rounds. And Major League Baseball did propose something to the union that was either 10 or 12 rounds. I got different answers from two different sources. But whatever it was, like I can live with that this year because this year is just, right, it's different. Everything's different. Weird. Things are weird. Right. Perfect. Five-round draft. You don't get Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt was not a guy. He was an eighth-rounder, right, out of a mid-major college in Texas. He was not a guy who should have gone higher, but there was something about the bonuses or whatever, and he slipped up. No, he was an eighth-round pick. He was seen as an eighth-round talent. And I don't want to miss Paul Goldschmidt. We're going to miss players. When you shorten the draft, we're going to lose a couple of players. You shorten from you know 40 rounds to 20 rounds, we're going to lose not that many players. Players will just get drafted. Some of those players will just get drafted a little higher. If teams really think they have a chance to the big leagues, they'll take them in the 18th round, and they'll save the senior signs for after the draft. That's fine. When you start really cutting back, though, and you're getting down to 10 rounds or fewer, you're going to lose players. And that I bring that up because it connects to the killing the short season, right? If you kill short season leagues, now you don't need as many rounds in the draft because you were often drafting players just to fill the short season rosters. Well, if you cut the draft, you're going to say, well, we don't have enough players, so we can't have the short season teams. It's very circular. Those two things very much go together. And that's fine. You're gonna you want to run some fewer teams. You want to get rid of the Appy League and get rid of the ten worst stadiums or worst run franchises. Fine. I understand that. That's capitalism, and they have the right to do that. I have a problem with any system that says we might lose Paul Goldschmidt because we want the Paul Goldschmidts. We don't want Paul Goldschmidt to get out of college and 
say, well, I go play indie ball, make no money, or you know what? I should just go get a job and start the rest of my life because we're worse off without Paul Goldschmidt in Major League Baseball. Well, and capping undrafted bonuses is going to do that too. I just, I don't understand. Yeah. Capping the, it really low. Yeah, I don't understand the lack of foresight in making decisions that will bring fewer athletes to your sport. It, it just, it, right. it seems like it should be an obvious long-term play to not do that. You know what? And if they turned around and said, you know what? We're going to fund more scholarships in the NCAA, which is something I've wanted them to do for a while anyway. Go to the NCAA and say, here's you know, some tens of millions of dollars each year to provide for every school to have two or three more full scholarships for baseball um, to give more opportunities for kids who might get, you know, slip through the cracks, particularly more kids from maybe disadvantaged economic backgrounds to get to play in college a little bit. And then also at the same time to say, fine, but you do have to work with us on some player development things like pitcher usage. That's a win-win for everybody. The NCAA would agree to some restrictions, I think, on, you know, say not overusing pitchers if it meant they could have two more scholarships for teams. You talk to coaches, of course they want more scholarships. They want them this year more than any year because they may get a lot of players back they weren't expecting to get back, or they're going to get more recruits actually showing up on campus than they thought because this year is weird. So I would love to see a situation like that where Major League Baseball says, we don't want to run the teams, but this is a relatively small amount of money for a multi-billion dollar business. We can keep the player development pipeline sort of going by using colleges more as partners as opposed to sort of this weird frenemy thing they have going on where it's, hey, we, we scout your guys and we take your guys and we help a little bit, but also we're always taking guys out of high school and discouraging them from coming to college. So we like you, but we don't really like you. You could fix that relationship and maybe make it more mutually beneficial. I think we'd all love to see that, but that would involve a lot of greedy people making sometimes non-greedy decisions. Very true. Which, which is tough. Keith, thank you so much for joining me. Let the folks again know where they can find your new book, The Inside Game, and where they can get your podcast and, and what you're writing. So I'm with The Athletic. You can find my podcast on The Athletic site. It's on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher as well. Um, I... I do have a new book out, The Inside Game. You can get it anywhere you're buying books. And I know, like I said, some bookstores are starting to open back up cautiously or do curbside or delivery service. If you don't have one of those near you, check out bookshop.org. I link to them constantly. I'm actually using them for all book links on my personal site, which is meadowparty.blog. Sorry, meadowparty.com slash blog, where I also do some book, movie, game reviews. You can find some of my game writing on Paste Magazine. Follow me on Twitter at Keith Law or on Facebook at Keith Law Writer. I am online way too much. As we all are, everyone go check out Keith's book. It's great. If you enjoyed this episode of Big Screen Sports, please remember subscribe, rate, review wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Monday. Also, if you are a baseball fan, please go check out my interview series from Phenom to the Farm uh, in partnership with Baseball America. That comes at you every other Tuesday. And until then, we'll see you next Monday. Thanks. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.